Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of the Bulls HQ podcast. Before we rip into this podcast, just a quick note on the availability of this show now on iTunes. So you'll be able to get the Bulls HQ podcast through your iTunes players. So hopefully that makes it a little easier to digest this content. So um, I'll be looking to do something similar with an Android player. So be be or stay on the lookout for that. I'll update you on that once that is sorted. But um, yes, a good update for those that have an Apple iPhone and, and prefer to listen to their podcast via their phone. Today's episode is pretty much a breakdown of the Bulls' upcoming playoff series against the Boston Celtics. And to go through all that with me today, I've got my old friend Kevin Ferrigan uh, to join me to dissect this series. And we're going to have a pretty in-depth look at the series. So hope you enjoy this episode and hopefully the Bulls are able to actually take a few games off the Celtics. So let's get straight into it. Kevin, how you doing, mate? Good. How are you? Good, mate. It's been a while since we've actually chatted and podcast together. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it has been uh, over over a year for sure. Almost, uh, almost two years, basically. Yeah, that's year and a half. I was half, trying I to guess. look up before. I was trying to look up before when the last time we recorded was. And for those that aren't aware, Kevin and I, well, we we pretty much started up along with Morton the the Dennis Podman podcast. But uh, you didn't hang around for too long because you got a job with the Mavs and. I think it was like the third episode is when you sort of clocked off and I don't think we've talked since then. So it's good to be speaking to you, man. Yeah. I mean, we talk, we just talk on Twitter, (laughs) but it is, it is good to, yeah, it it is good to actually hear, hear your voice and, uh, um, to, to, uh, not just hear it through my, uh, headphones as I listen to one of the podcast episodes that you've appeared on and or hosted (laughs) since then. Yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, good good to be speaking. You weren't speaking to you, and I'm obviously speaking because the Bulls have made the playoffs. That <laughs> pretty much took them the last day of the season to actually get in, but they they've done it now and they've they've slid into the eighth seed and they've pretty much fallen into probably their most favorable potential matchup that they could have had uh, in playing the Boston Celtics. So the Celtics obviously finished as the first seeds, and and the Bulls as the eighth seed. Um, so it's it's probably the best outcome for the Bulls in terms of matchups. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, you know, their other option was the Cavs, and LeBron murders them every time that they, they play in the playoffs. <laughs> um, you know, the Bulls seem to always rise to the occasion against LeBron in, in the regular season, uh, and or LeBron just doesn't care about the regular season one or the other, and then come playoff time, he he just. Uh, you know, raises his game, and the Bulls don't don't have the ability to do that typically. So, um, you know, it, good to avoid LeBron. And I think, uh, honestly, I think that the Celtics are one of the weakest one seeds we've seen in um, quite a long time in terms of like if you just look at their talent, um, they've you know overachieved to, to a significant degree to to be the one seed, in my opinion. Yeah, and that sort of leads me to my my first real question, and and, and that's uh, I guess is how credible are the, are the Celtics as a first seed? I don't really know how to process that question, and, and I'm seeing varying varying positions. The, the Celtics basically since Jan one, no no other team not named Golden State or San Antonio have more wins than Boston since Jan one. They're a top ten offense and defense since January one, so the seventh in offense and eighth in defense. So. 
the the general themes of the team are, are pretty good, but in terms of the East and its competition, it's been pretty weak. So, and and to your point, that the Celtics are a weak number one, but in processing how credible the Celtics are, where do you sit on that? Yeah, so there's there's a few things going on. So I I don't necessarily like to to just look at the you know since the start of the. 2017 numbers just because especially with the with the team like the Celtics where I don't think that they've had like a significant change in their team uh, composition from January 1 so like it's one thing to um, to look at splits like that if there's been a big change so like I wrote an article uh, for my newsletter uh, this past week, and uh, the I wrote about the Raptors and their chances to maybe knock off the Cavs in the playoffs, and I I looked at those kinds of splits um, since the trade deadline, but like that made more sense to me because the Raptors uh, made two big moves. They they traded for PJ Tucker and they they traded for Serge Ibaka, so that fundamentally altered the composition of their team. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought that looking at those shifts made sense for the Celtics. They've been kind of the same team, I think, right along. So I think looking at the larger sample of the the whole season um, gives you as much information as as you want. I I think it's you know good for them that they're playing better, um, and I think that there's some some degree of that is probably uh because they are so reliant on systems to be successful because they don't have the overwhelming talent that getting those systems in place and getting them uh you know really firing in all, all cylinders is kind of like probably why they've been so good um since January 1 i think that your cutoff points can can make a pretty big difference cuz so for like for instance i looked at the the bulls and the celtics since the trade deadline and the bulls actually somehow have a better um, point differential net rating uh, than the Celtics since the trade deadline, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the Celtics have more wins. The, the Bulls have been like 13 and 12 since the trade deadline and Celtics have been like 15 and 9. But in terms of net rating, the, the Bulls have been slightly better. So I, I think, though, just in terms of the Celtics quality, I think we kind of know what they are. They're, I think one of the things with them is that they maxed out their potential. So I, th- I think that they are a team primarily of role players. Um, and, you know, they got Al Horford this season. And I think people thought that that was, you know, going to change their identities to some extent because last year they were like this overachieving team of role players. Um, I think Al Horford is really, you know, kind of like a souped up role player in a lot of ways. Um, I, I've thought that he's a good player, don't get me wrong, but I, I've, I've I think he's been kind of overrated for a while now, and he's also 30. And um, I think he does a lot of things pretty well, but I don't think he's really great at anything. And so those guys are valuable, but I don't know that you know they're max contract valuable. And so he hasn't really fundamentally changed their identity. Um, and so they're they're a team of of essentially uh, you know very very solid and very well uh, well fitting role players and then they're obviously spearheaded by uh, Isaiah Thomas and I just don't um, think if you look at that roster that they make sense as a one seed the East has been very down the Cavs have not been very good the Cavs I think are still clearly the best team in the East and I think even the Raptors if Kyle Lowry had not gotten hurt would have been uh, would have finished with a better record than the Celtics so 
you know, I, I do think they're a very weak one seed and I don't know um, if they have, you know, another gear to go up during the playoffs. Um, and I think it's worrisome for them that they don't have the best player in the series. Obviously, that's Jimmy Butler. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to any Celtics fans that might, for some reason, be listening. Isaiah Thomas is not better than Jimmy Butler. It's not really close. No, um, no way. Yeah, I, I don't buy them really that much as a strong team. And I think the Bulls have a have as good a chance as a eight seed could probably have. Um, the Bulls have their own issues, which is why I don't think they'll win the series. But uh, they do have the best player in the series, and um, you know the the Celtics are. I wonder about them in terms of, you know, the, the Bulls had this a little bit um, when they were the one seed, uh, when Derrick Rose and was uh, still a thing um, and they had Tibbs, like they had, there, there was always this talk that they didn't have an extra gear because they went really hard in the regular season. Um, and so you already had seen what their pe- potential was. I think the Celtics team is like that, except for not quite as good as those Bulls were. Um so, you know, kind of similar issues. They, they're maxed out their potential in the regular season. And I don't think that you can't play any more intense uh, than Marcus Smart already plays, you know. So, like, yeah, uh, I don't know whether there's any more room for growth for them beyond, you know, the very solid team that they've been. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. And I, I guess I'm sort of torn on the Celtics. What I would say is I do view them as the most favorable matchup to the Bulls or for the Bulls, rather, despite all, you know, whatever whatever splits you want to take, whether it's Jan 1, after the trade deadline, start of the year, whatever it is, I think you can find an argument for the Celtics being a very good team. But fundamentally, there are a team that over-rely heavily on a five foot nine guard who is having an incredible season, but they don't really have much offensive creation outside of Isaiah Thomas. So I can't really get past that point, I guess. Whereas if you, where you think about Toronto... They have they have Lowry, they have DeRozan who can create shots. Obviously, the the Cavs have Irving and LeBron on the perimeter, and, and even the the Wizards now they've got John Wall and Bradley Beal. So, whilst other teams have multiple creators, I'm not, I'm not so sure about the Celtics. So that's probably the the biggest fundamental difference between them and the their other top seeds in the Eastern Conference, and it's why the Bulls have a a, a very remote chance of beating the Celtics, but the, there is a chance. Um, so let's get stuck into how the Bulls can actually stop the Celtics and on offense. And that primarily, I guess, rests on actually stopping Isaiah Thomas. How would you actually go about guarding Thomas? He's had an unbelievable season. I think Kevin Durant is pretty much the only more efficient player on a usage percentage greater than 25%. So he's been absolutely incredible for a guy that has such a size uh disadvantage but how, how should the Bulls go about tactically trying to stop him stopping him in this series yeah so I think you know there there are two uh, general strategies you could you could deploy right so there's the make other guys beat you idea so you kind of try to take the ball out of Thomas's hands and 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 force the Celtics to to make make their other guys swing the ball until they find an open shot and, and uh, beat you that way. And um, there's something to that because as you mentioned, they don't necessarily have a lot of guys who uh, can create offense for themselves or, or others. Uh, What they do have though is is a lot of guys who can make, you know, a play off the bounce if they're 
set up in a good scenario. So if you're double teaming Isaiah Thomas um, in order to in order to take the ball out of his hands, um, you know, much like the the Cavs did years ago with Derrick Rose, they, they would try to get the ball out of Rose's hands because the Bulls had so many limited players around him. Um, the the Celtics players are limited, but they have a little bit more of an ability to catch the ball, make a couple dribbles, and then swing it around to the next guy um, and keep the defense uh, sort of scrambled and, and um, on their heels, essentially. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they, they can then uh, like attack closeouts and, and attack guys that are scrambling back into position after um, sort of helping and recovering. I think that's the danger of... Uh, trying to get the ball out of Isaiah Thomas's hands. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that they're going to swing it and they're going to look for the best shots because they're a very well coached team. And that's largely what they've, what they've done outside of Thomas as an offense. I mean, he's carried a huge load for them just in terms of scoring, but um, when he's not the one getting shots, it's, it's typically that's what they do is like teams will try to get, uh, get the ball out of Isaiah's hands. And then, you know, the, that's how they kind of, um, pass, 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 and then get the open shot. Honestly, the the real way to, to take him out of his game is not necessarily what you do to him on when he's on offense, but it's what you do to him when he's on defense. So I would be involving him in ball screens and uh, having his man, because they're going to try to stick him on whoever the, the worst uh, offensive player is for the Bulls um, in the backcourt tip probably. And so I would have his man be the screener in pick and rolls for Jimmy and just have have him get run through screens all day um, and basically try to wear him out and, uh, you know, force, a, force switches where he's got to guard Jimmy and let Jimmy post him up. Uh, basically just run him ragged defensively and really try to take his legs out um, by, by just wearing him out. And I think, and then you you put uh, you know the Bulls the Bulls other problem is that they don't have a lot of strong perimeter defenders and like to ask Jimmy to carry the offensive load that he's going to need to carry and and then go uh, you know be the lockdown defender on Isaiah Thomas he might be able to do it because he's going to have days days off in between um, and he he's a crazy person um, <laughs> but uh, you know he might say I want that challenge and I'll I'll go do it um, or it might be the case that they save that they don't do it all for most of the game but if it's close down the stretch they then they say okay Jimmy you go guard him and then you know also be the our offense on the other end um, I think that might be the the move but I think for me the strategy would be to try to take his legs out when he's on defense and then so that when he uh, when you stick to the Celtics shooters and don't help off of them really that much, he's not going to necessarily have uh, his, his legs will be a little bit sapped. And I also just think that the intensity of playoff basketball um, guys are going to be playing just that little bit harder um, on defense. And so I think that there's, there's a certain extent to which his limitations um you know, of being five nine, and uh, th- those things have shown up. If you go and look at his efficiency for his, his last two seasons in the playoffs for the Celtics, um, he has not been the same guy in ter- from an efficiency perspective uh, come playoff time. And um, you know, I, I think that's largely because teams are t- on him tighter, um, and I, I think that that's a a real. I, I think that even though you know it's a 10 game sample size of playoff games that he's got so far. I think that there is some, something to that. Uh, and, and I think that, uh, you know, 
a lot of it is just going to be relying on the Bulls to be sort of intense defensively. Yeah, look, everything you touched on there, I would agree with, and I pretty much wrote as much today that um, in terms of how I would stop Isaiah, it's it's not on 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 defense at all. It's it's by running him through all those sorts of screens that you mentioned on 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 offense when the Bulls are on offense because. Yeah, tiring him physically, I think he's probably the best option rather than trying to check him somehow on defense. I'm not really keen on this trapping idea that is sort of being floated. And you mentioned that the Heat, the Heat did it to Derrick Rose in 2011 and that potentially the Bulls should be trying to do that against Thomas now. But I worry about doing that because the Bulls are not a good team in help defense. When they start doubling and switching and these sorts of things, their communication really goes down the toilet and no one really helps each other. And given that the Celtics are third in three-point makes and attempts this season, I, I just see a lot of open threes in those scenarios where the Bulls are really trapping uh, Thomas Hard, doubling him up. And like you said, the Celtics are a really good passing team. and They will find that open man, and that open man will often be Jay Crowder in the corner or Kelly Alunik in the top shooting an open three or, or something like that. So I think everything you touched on there makes complete sense to me. It'll be interesting to see how long Butler actually spends on Thomas, um, whether it's you know periods in the second quarter we, we see Butler checking him or, or if Hoiberg waits to use him purely in the last couple of minutes in the game. That'll be, I think, an interesting component to, to this series. But I, th- I think another thing that the Bulls need to consider as well is, and it's just not necessarily guarding Isaiah, but how do the Bulls actually combat the Celtics' smaller units. So that, that's going to be a problem as well. So Thomas is obviously a dynamic offensive player, but what Brad Stevens likes to do as well is to have three guards on the floor as well. So if you if the Bulls do try to trap, it's not like back in 2011 when the Bulls had Kyle Korver and Lol Deng on the wings. The, the Celtics will have guys like Avery Bradley, Avery Bradley, Marcus Smart, these guys who can make a play like you mentioned. So... How do the Bulls actually go about combating the Celtics' smaller units when the Bulls traditionally like to play with two bigs most of the times? Yeah, I think uh, the the Bulls' biggest obstacle, honestly, is going to be uh, Fred Hoiberg's stubbornness and, and lack of creativity when it comes to to lineups. Um, you know, the the fact that as soon as Rondo came back um, against the Nets last night, it didn't matter because the Nets sat all of their players of any consequence but like he brought rondo back and and played him with uh the other two alphas uh and like we've seen over and over and over again that those three guys together just don't work um if you put two of them out there uh any two of them as long as jimmy is one of those two so any combination of jimmy and rondo or jimmy and wade works as long as wade or uh rondo is not also out there um so you can you can do it, but again, and you also have to have a floor spacer from the big spot. So you you know you probably have to have Miritich out there. Um, but I th- I think that uh, the 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 biggest issue for them is going to be the fact that Hoiberg is not very creative with his lineups. He doesn't seem to understand matchups that well. Um, he doesn't seem to understand how his players fit together that well. Either that, or I don't know if it's a lack of understanding, or or, or if it's cowardice, because um, he's afraid to to put you know one of his veterans um, on the bench because they don't fit necessarily as well with some of the other guys. Um, but it's just a, an inefficient use of resources. Uh, you know, the the bench units need sh- 
shot creators to get the guys that aren't good shot creators open looks. And so to have all three of your shot creators all on the floor all at once, and they're actually making life more difficult for each other, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so like that's the the offensive side of it. And I worry that he's also not creative enough on, on the defensive side. So like I don't think that it's going to make a lot of sense um, to play uh, to play two traditional big men um, at all the this entire series and really probably not at all in the playoffs if, if by some weird uh miraculous uh Jimmy Butler goes bananas for four games um scenario where the Bulls w- win the series uh it's not going to make sense to play two traditional big men in the playoffs really and so but I I suspect that he probably will do that some um but like I think if you're going to have that small lineup like I think, you know, if you had maybe Jerry and Grant, Jimmy Butler, Wade, uh, and so you're playing Jimmy Butler at small forward but still running the offense through him, uh, play Zipser at the four and Miritich at the five, like that's a lineup that I have wanted to see um, just because, I, you know, it has shooting, it has, uh, it has guys that can – uh, you know, Zipster's probably not going to be a good defensive player at the four, but like he's also not the fastest guy anyway. So I think just seeing his floor spacing at the four spot and, and um, you know, I don't think he's going to absolutely kill you. He probably wouldn't do that well on the glass, but like the Celtics are a bad defense, uh, a bad rebounding team anyway. So that doesn't mm-hmm. really matter as much. Um, yep. So like, I, I don't know. I think that's the lineup that I would like to see him try, but I just don't trust him to be sort of creative or innovative or uh, to have the guts really to, to try something different like that. Yeah, look, and I would agree with that. And, and we sort of saw in the in the last Nets game what the, the nine-man rotation was sort of shaping up to be. So obviously Miritich and Lopez will be the front court starters and, and Portis and Felicio look to be like the backups with Zipser and Grant being the main perimeter guys coming off the bench. So that'll be the nine-man rotation heading into the playoffs, whether Fred Hoiberg has the ability to adjust to that. I would imagine his biggest adjustment will probably be playing a guy like Carter Williams for defensive purposes. I'm sure the Bulls will do that at some point, trying to uh, overcome Isaiah Isaiah Thomas with length, and I'm sure Fred will will reach out to to Carter Williams to do that, which um, I don't really want to see, but um, for for its effects that it will have on offense. But I, I totally agree with you on that lineup. That would be a really good lineup to combat those smaller units and particularly because of the the Celtics not necessarily being a good re- rebounding team you don't really lose anything by putting Miritich at center Al Horford isn't going to crush you on the rebounds and a lot of the times he's, he's playing out on the perimeter anyway and when the Celtics do go small they, they'll, they'll have Jay Crowder playing power forward so you can have Paul Zipser matching up against Crowder so I don't necessarily see that as a problem as well so I'm kind of into that unit that you you mentioned there but it'll just come down to whether Hoiberg actually has the ability to implement such a lineup and I'm not sure if he's going to do so because at the moment he's starting both Rondo and Wade and that's a pretty good way to, to have some d- defensive flaws <laughs> straight away in the set in the series so i'm expecting i'm expecting the balls to have some problems with both avery bradley and isaiah thomas pretty much as soon as the game starts yeah the the bulls defense at the point of attack is, is going to be a problem for them all all series because uh you know i mentioned playing jerry and grant but he's not really a good defensive player and probably their best 
point guard defender is, I guess, Michael Carter-Williams, but he has all the problems that uh, that Rondo has in terms of um, you know, not being a good shooter. And honestly, Rondo is a much better shooter than Michael Carter Williams at this point. Rondo mm-hmm. has actually shot fairly decently on, you know, limited volume, obviously, but uh, he's, he's been able to make some, whereas Michael Carter Williams will f- put one up and like hit the side of the backboard and not even come close. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, I think that there is a little bit of like trying to make, uh, square pegs fit in around holes that that is a, a difficulty that Hoiberg has. Another lineup I was thinking about, you know, if you're not necessarily trying to go against the Celtic strength, which is their ability to play small, um, you know, you might try to go the other way and say, all right, well, if you're going to go small, we're, we're going to uh, take advantage of that because you guys are a bad rebounding team anyway. And so we're just going to pound you on the glass. Like, so if they had Butler uh, basically playing point guard, Wade at, um, Wade at shooting guard, uh, Zipser at the uh, small forward, and Miritich at the four, and then Lopez at the five. Like, that's a lineup that still fits together because you still have probably enough shooting between mm-hmm. Zipser and Miritich, and you you still have a traditional center uh, who can, you know, Lopez is a, is a good re- rebounder. Um, even that is like a is a lineup that, that kind of makes sense. You just can't play the three alphas together. Like, you know, that's the biggest yeah. thing you, because you have the lack of floor spacing on one end, and then, uh, you know, Ron, frankly, Rondo and, and Wade are not good, good defensive players anymore. Um, yeah. And so... You know, to put both of them out there, you're you're hurting yourself on both ends. Um, you can you can live with uh, you know having one of them out there at a time, but both of them is just it's it doesn't work. Yeah, totally. And I've been pushing this idea that Wade should be coming off the bench, particularly given his injury, and he, he only have really three three games to trying to to get himself back into game conditioning, and he did look fairly rusty in those three games and. I don't think there was much for him to, or much for us to learn about Wade in, in in those three games, given that the Bulls were playing some pretty poor opposition. So, I've been pushing this theory that he should be coming off the bench, and and, and Rondo and Butler should be the starters in terms of alphas with Paul Zipser starting. I understand that Zipser isn't as accomplished, or or is just not as good as Dwayne Wade at the moment, but. I just think that balance, which you sort of mentioned before, makes sense to me. Would Would you agree with that logic? Yeah, I mean, I, I for me, it really like I'm 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 almost completely indifferent to to you know Wade versus Rondo. It just can't be both. Like you yeah. know, um, I, I see the logic for having Wade be the one that comes off the bench, uh, especially with the injury. Um, having having been out for longer, I know Rondo just had an injury of his own, but he wasn't like out long enough to like get out of shape. Um, mm-hmm. Wade has been, you know, has had some time away, and I, I think like honestly, Dwayne Wade against second units is like it's a very uh, strong parallel to Pau Gasol. Like Pau Gasol, it, he's you know old, but he's still good enough to dominate second units. Um, and like you know, I wrote. A while ago, uh, when I was writing for Bloggable, that the I thought that signing Pau Gasol was a mistake, and it wasn't necessarily just because Pau Gasol was bad. It was because the Bulls were afraid to to use him the way that he ought to be used. He goes to San Antonio, and Pop says, "You're coming off the bench," and like, lo and behold, he looks great because like, and I know he got a lot of points and stuff for the Bulls when he was here, but like. He was bad on defense, and he hurt the Bulls a lot in their starting unit. And whereas, like, 
second unit uh, offensive players are not going to hurt him as much on defense because they're just not as talented. Um, and like, uh, there's a lot that, to be said for Wade in, the, in a similar role. Obviously, like you know, small guy versus big guy, but uh, you know, you need you need uh, shot creation. You need somebody that is scoring punch off the bench a lot of the time. And um, you know, that's that was always the logic I think for the for the Spurs with Manu was you know we need somebody that's going to be able to to sop up minutes on the second unit and keep those units afloat so that we don't you know fall apart. And it's a better use of our resources to have you. Uh, with the second unit for chunks of the game and then close with the starters. Um, and I think like something like that for Wade is, is probably uh, warranted. And, you know, if you want to close with Wade and, and put Rondo on the bench in, in crunch time because of the free throw shooting stuff, you know, that makes sense too. Uh, I just, you know, the, I definitely agree that, that there's a lot of logic there. to And like, I think you can even like, if you're worried about selling it to Wade, say, listen, like you're still clearly not in shape. Uh, come off the bench and play your way back into shape and dominate these second units and you'll your numbers are going to look great for the playoffs it's not going to hurt your legacy or something to be you know super six man or whatever yeah exactly and it looked as i said that that makes sense to me but going back to what we were mentioning mentioning about hoiberg it's, it's very clear that he's going the three alpha route with miritich and lopez despite that lineup only playing 35 minutes all season so that in itself will be a story for the bulls trying to work out on the fly whether that rotation or that starting unit can actually gel together i would would imagine it's going to have troubles um given that you know what we've seen from the three alphas already this season but um we'll see how it goes so we've sort of talked about how the bulls can go about stopping the celtics but how about the bulls on offense so you mentioned before that the bulls will have the best player in this series and i think most would agree with that that jimmy butler is the best player in this series but he's going to have a pretty big load um, offensively as well as defensively. So ha- how how much do the Bulls actually have to run things through Jimmy Butler? He, he actually doesn't lead the team in usage percentage, which is kind of crazy. Dwayne Wade does, but that needs to change in the postseason, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, this, this gets right back to what we were just talking about. I think it the fact that Jimmy kind of defers to Wade a little bit um, in the sense that like, that's why their usages uh, are flip flop from what they ought to be. Um, I think that's a, that's a real issue. And that's another reason for, you know, potentially separating them and putting them on separate units uh, so that you're, you know, when Jimmy's on the floor, he's the one with the ball. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's, it's di- difficult to talk about this stuff to some to some extent because it's like talking about what the, we end up talking about what the Bulls ought to do and then like there's always like in the back of my mind or you know it's not even really the back of my mind it's kind of front of mind right now is just I know the likelihood of what they're going to do versus what <laughs> they really ought to do um and you know I think that Jimmy's gonna have a difficult time because Hoiberg is looks like he's going to be going with the the three alphas in the starting lineup. Uh, Jimmy looks great when you give him at, you know, a minimum of two shooters around him. Um, I wrote about that earlier in the season. That trend is held, uh, goes back, you know, beyond. It goes all the way back to last year. Whenever he had two shooters on the floor, he looked phenomenal. Um, and when he has just one or zero shooters on the floor with him, uh, you know, his numbers suffer um, and the team suffers. And so he's going to be playing, you know, in a, uh, 
essentially in a straitjacket. Uh, he's not going to have a lot of spacing unless uh, Hoiberg smartens up. And, and you know, my my faith in that happening is pretty low. Uh, so, you know, it's possible that Isaiah Thomas might look better than him at the end of the series or have better numbers um, simply because his coach uh, – didn't do the the most obviously prudent thing and, and give him some shooting around him because he was afraid to, you know, make Rajon Rondo or Dwayne Wade angry at him. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think Jimmy will still have a good, uh, good series just because he's, he's that good, but uh, his efficiency could be, uh, could suffer from the fact that he's going to be getting swarmed uh, a lot, I would imagine. And, and, you know, frankly, the, the Celtics have a lot of very good perimeter defenders. Uh, Marcus Smart is one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. Um, you know, Jay Crowder is a solid perimeter defender, and he and Jimmy Butler don't get along uh, for whatever reason. I think Jay Crowder has some kind of problem with him because Jay Crowder is like the most petty human being alive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Avery Bradley is like an annoying uh, perimeter defender. I, I don't think Avery Bradley is, is nearly as good as his re- reputation uh, as a defender. Um, he he does that stuff that like uh, looks really effective um, in terms of like he's he does a lot of the things that are very showy on defense. Like he's like you know mm-hmm. up, uh, he'll press up on guys full court and um, you know but it doesn't ever really seem to not ever but it, a lot of the times it doesn't really seem to to do much. It just like makes a guy annoyed with him. But it, in terms of actual like stopping guys from scoring or whatever. I think he's a little bit overrated there. Don't get me wrong. He's like, he's a solid defender, but I don't think he's like this all NBA defender that um, a lot of uh, people seem to think, and especially Celtics fans. I had an argument with my buddy who is a a diehard Celtics fan about, about this. And he was like trying to tell me that Avery Bradley was, you know, this very good defensive player. And I was just like, I don't know, like, (laughs) after you know as many years as he's been in the league with this reputation I think it would show up somewhere in the data and like if you look at every single year of like all the adjusted plus minus statistics he always rates out as like a a perfectly average defender um so with that many uh seasons of data I start to say all right well maybe there's something wrong with people's eye test you know um but anyway he's still like a capable defender he's not he's definitely not hurting anybody out there so they have a lot of bodies to throw at Jimmy Butler, um, and he doesn't have uh, a ton of help. And the, the help that he really needs is floor spacers to, to give him driving lanes and give him targets to make passes to. Um, and unfortunately, it looks like Fred Hoiberg is, is not going to give him the tools he needs to he, – he's not going to let him be great, <laughs> it looks yeah. like. The, the Celtics' best defense is Fred Hoiberg, basically. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, I mean, that's a separate topic in itself. But you, you alluded to my next point there, which was going to be the the, uh, the amount of options that Celtics really do have to put on Jimmy Butler, whether they're actively trying to do it or, or whether it just comes in switching scenarios. You mentioned Jay Crowder, um, a- Avery Bradley, Marcus Smart, even, even um, Jalen Brown, if he gets minutes, he probably won't play too much, but he could have a go at Jimmy Butler. So they've got... They've got four guys at least that could swing onto Jimmy Butler at some points, and and just that ability to have a fresh body on Butler at times, I think, could be a problem. That does worry me, particularly that the Bulls don't have a lot of consistent offensive options next to Butler, as we, as we, as you alluded to. So, and I guess one of those inconsistent types of players that we do have on offense is, is Nikola Mirotic. Maybe a difficult question to 
to answer, but it's a very easy, very easy question for me to ask. <laughs> what Nikola Mirotic is actually going to show up in the playoffs? Um, do we do we even know? Is it possible to know? <laughs> uh, I think like. So one of the things that I, I think frustrates me about about how people talk about Miritic um, is that the one thing he's really inconsistent with is, is his jump shot. Um, yeah. I think he's I think he's actually a very consistent player in terms of uh, some of the other stuff. Like I think he's always a capable defender. Um, mm-hmm. You know he he has a, people give him this reputation because he's like kind of a. Uh, wiry, skinny, uh, Euro- European guy that he, that he's this bad defender because he, but he's actually pretty strong for for how he looks, um, and he tends to to do very well at keeping guards in front of him for the most part, unless you're talking about like the very fastest guards in the league, and you know like most guys can't stay in front of those guys, but like for a big man, he does pretty well on switches. Uh, he gets a lot of steals, especially for a, a power forward. He is a solid defensive rebounder. Like he does a, like almost everything well on defense. Um, he's always like a pretty good uh, facilitator if you give him the ball and like say go make a play. So like he he can run pick and rolls and not be a disaster there. The, really, the the thing that's most inconsistent about him is his his jumper, and I think that's honestly like. Some of that is, you know, he's a hot and cold shooter. I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that, that that's a complete like uh, misnomer, but I, I do think that some of it is just like small sample size. Like he doesn't take that many shots typically. So if he's had, and like the other thing that happens with him is that if he's having a night that he, where he feels like he's off, he'll stop shooting um, mm-hmm. and, or like get down on himself or, or whatever. And um, I think he gets in his own head a little bit, whereas he should be just like, saying no I'm like uh, I'm like a 36% 37% three point shooter and sometimes I'm going to miss some in a row and just keep firing shooter shoot you know like that that whole thing um and so I think people look at him and like think oh, all the only value he brings is that he's a a shooter and so if he's not shooting well then he's in, he's playing inconsistently and I think that he brings a lot of additional value I'm you know a big Miritic guy um or Miritic uh, I, I'm a big, you know, fan of his, and I, I think, you know, it, it's the Bulls uh, seem to be a, a little bit down on him, and I, I'm going to be very uh, annoyed if they let him go in free agency without, you know, really making a, a an effort to to keep him. I think he's a restricted free agent, so you know, I think they should probably match whatever offer he's likely to get. Um, mm-hmm. because I think he's still relatively young and I think he's, uh, I think he is a two way player and they don't have enough of those. Um, I think he helps offensively because of the floor spacing and I, and because he does have playmaking ability. And I think he does so many things well on defense besides like, he's not obviously a good post defender, but like post defense doesn't really matter in the modern NBA. I mean, it matters a little bit, but not really. Um, and, and so like, I, I think he'll be a, positive player for them regardless whether his shooting will be consistent that I don't know but he he's he's valuable to me regardless of whether he's making shots obviously I hope he's making shots because I really don't want to hear Bulls fans complain about him if he has a cold snap against the Celtics um and especially because the Bulls are, are their Bulls front office is kind of like dumb enough to like hold that against him uh, and like be like, all right, we don't need him if he has like a bat or or at the very least to like cynically use that against him when they're like uh, kicking him as he goes out of town after he signs with some other team and they're like decide not to match it and they'll like run his name through the mud and the media or whatever. 
I wonder how many people uh, are cringing at all this Miritich talk, but he because he is one of the, I guess, or probably is the most polarizing bull at the moment. But like you, I am a Miritich homer, so I, I'm I am hoping for a big series from him, one to justify, I guess, the inconsistent year he has has had him finishing strongly to the season will obviously be very good for him in terms of contract negotiations, but it will be obviously favorable for the Bulls, not only this season, but potentially looking forward as well. And and what I've noticed with Miritich as well is, is he's, he's found a good relationship with Jimmy Butler in their two-man game. I think there's something to, to work with in this series as well as moving forward. I think those two have a connection, but... To your point, I, I think this is probably the best series for Miritich to show out in terms of his defense. The Celtics don't have a lot of front court bruises that are going to hurt him in the post. And, and like you alluded to, he's very good on switches and he can stay in front of guards. And unless it's on Isaiah Thomas, who's going to blow past pretty much everyone in the league, in switches, I'd be comfortable with Miritich switching on to Marcus Smart or Avery Bradley or Terry Rozier or whoever it is. He, he can contain those guys in pick and roll. So that's actually... This could actually be a good series to highlight Miritich's defense ability, ability and hopefully for fin- for the final time, kill any any narrative off that he is a poor defender. But um, I, I guess my biggest worry with Miritich is the fact that the Bulls are going down this three alpha route. So every time we've seen Miritich succeed at the NBA level, it's when he's been featured more as a playmaker or someone that's able to make decisions for himself with the ball in hand rather than being a guy that finishes a play on a jump shot. So you, you alluded to his his jump shooting and how it can be how it can be hot and cold and I think it just comes down to, to role and confidence that when he's sort of relegated to that jump shooting role, he gets down on himself because that's effectively what it's, he's out there to do. And if he starts missing, he he, get, he goes into his shell, he'll only take about six to seven shots and they'll be bad shots, but um he, he can't fight his way through that. So I'm a bit worried that not only uh, is the three alpha effect going to be counterintuitive to those three guys themselves, but also for a guy like Miritich, who's a better player when he actively has the ball in, ha- in his hands. So I think that is something to, to watch out for the Bulls. And, and, and given that, and I sort of alluded to the guys, uh, Rondo and Wade, they were brought here to be, I guess, the guys that pushed the Bulls back into the playoffs after obviously missing last season. What are you expecting from these two guys? How, how effective do you think each will be? And, and, and between the two, who who's, has a greater likelihood of actually being a bit of a disappointment? Well, I think the expectations are higher for, for Wade um, because yeah. he, he did play really well in the playoffs last year. Um, and he's also historically been the better of the two. You know, he's maybe the third or fourth best shooting guard of all time, depending on who you ask and uh, you know, how much people value longevity and versus uh, peak performance. Um, but he, he's, he has a greater likelihood of disappointing, I would say, because he's not in shape right now because his expectations are probably the highest. Um, and you know, that some of that is because he's Dwayne Wade and some of it is just because I think he, um, you know, has been the better player of the two this season, uh, even though Rondo has finished this season probably stronger than Wade did. Um, so, but I, I just think that the people are going to expect a lot more from Wade than from Rondo. Uh, Rondo Rondo's reputation around the league and just even among fans, I think, is is pretty 
the baseline is established pretty low. Uh, there, there are some still some like hardcore Rondo stands out there. Every once in a while, one of them will yell at me because I tend to be a tend to be a Rondo hater. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think most likely to disappoint is probably Wade just because of the the expectation level. I I don't necessarily expect either of them to be super effective. Uh, there I. People talk, have talked about playoff Rondo and whether whether that's going to be a thing. Um, I don't know. I, 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 the Mavericks, the last time he was in the playoffs, Rondo got sent home by the Mavericks. So <laughs> um, I, I don't know if playoff Rondo is is still a thing. I don't know if that if that's even uh, something that's that's still in there for him. But uh, may, maybe he'll, he'll have that. But I think again, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to to belabor the point, but. I don't think that their coach is putting them in the best scenario to succeed. So I think both of them are going to be less effective than they might be um, if if Hoiberg knew what he was doing. Uh, and so, yeah, I think I think that's probably the where I come down on it. Is I I don't expect them to be super effective, um, and, and I largely attribute to that to the fact that like well, one, they're not both of them are not very good anymore. They're like okay. Uh, and then the other aspect being that they're not going to be put in the best situations for them to flourish. And, you know, that uh, that's too bad because um, it, it would be better if if they were. We'd get a better, more entertaining series. And, you know, the Bulls would probably still lose, but, uh, you know, it, it would make the series better. And, um, you know, those guys would look better uh, and it'd be more entertaining. Yeah, definitely. And, and we we just, we just uh, discussed before the the option of, of putting Wade on the bench or having him come off the bench rather. And, and one of the reasons I actually like that logic is the fact that the Bulls have a, a kind of a weak bench at the moment. So their bench actually has zero games of playoff experience. There isn't any shot creation at all on that bench unit. And I'm fearful that that may be the greatest divide between the teams heading into the series, the, the, the difference in depth and bench play. So would you agree that that is the biggest difference between the two teams? Oh, absolutely. The the Celtics' depth is one of their great strengths. Um, you know, it, it, arguably their their greatest strength uh, because they're not a team, as I mentioned, sort of at the outset of all this, that they're not a team with a tremendous amount of uh, you know high end talent. Um, they're a team of, you know, depth and a lot of quality role players, um, you know, doing, maximizing themselves within a role. Uh, and their bench is much better than the Bulls bench. Um, the Bulls have one of the weakest benches, uh, you know, in the league probably. Um, and, and, you know, the overall, the Bulls, the Bulls team overall is, uh, probably one of the weakest outside of Jimmy Butler. Like I think, um, I was, uh, I think uh, it was Nathan Walker from Nylon Calculus uh, tweeted out a thing where he took um, RPM wins and adjusted it for uh, basically this concept called Morris wins, which uh, is named after Benjamin Morris, who's a 538 writer. And basically the idea is that like, um, we always look at everything through the lens of point differential, but there is additional information in which teams win because winning is like a repeatable skill. Uh, you see that with teams that consistently underperform their uh, win expectation, like the Timberwolves, like every year they always <laughs> disappoint relative to what their point differential is. Um, and so um, that's a kind of a long digression, but the, he basically, he, he 
Benjamin Morris put together this formula that like gives you a better uh, predictability of um, likelihood of winning by combining point differential and uh, win percentage. And um, so Nathan took that and adjusted uh, real plus minus wins um, for guys relative to their uh, so the Bulls point differential, I think, is worse than what they actually ended up winning. So Jimmy got a boost in that metric, and he actually came out first in RPM wins when you adjust for that. And he was like worth like 20 wins over a replacement. Um, and so like if you think about it, the Bulls won 21 games. If, if they didn't have Jimmy Butler and they replaced him with like a guy off the, a guy off the scrap heap, they would have won yep. 20 games. If they had had a, like an average player, they would have maybe won 25 games or something like that. Like they, their team is really bad outside of Jimmy. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, whereas the Celtics, their top to bottom is, is sort of what their strength is. Like Isaiah Thomas has had a great year. Don't get me wrong. But like, if he's your best player, like you shouldn't be, a 53 win team you shouldn't um but they have a lot of uh, quality guys around him which is another reason why like the idea that he was an mvp candidate was was silly to me because they have a very good roster so it's funny i i just mentioned that the maybe the biggest gaps between the the two teams is their benches their benches but thinking about it a bit more maybe the biggest difference between the two teams is actually is actually coaching so obviously brad stevens is pretty heralded as as the Boston Celtics coach, whereas Fred Hoiberg, uh, a lot of people in the, in the preseason had them as or had him as their pick for the, the coach that's most likely to get fired. So, two coaches on on complete uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. Both coaches that have come out of the college the college system into the NBA. One's obviously been tremendously successful. The other has hovered around five hundred and and has struggled. Maybe maybe the coaching aspect is the biggest difference between the teams, not necessarily the benches. Obviously, the bench part of it plays into the coaching factor, but maybe the, the difference between Stevens and Hoiberg is the biggest gap in this series. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to measure a coach, um, but there, there's two things that I think really are illustrative of the differences between Hoiberg and, and Stevens. So, Stevens is consistently really, really good at getting shots out of timeouts. And so that's like people like love to look at that as like uh, who's a good coach because, um, you know, if that's where a coach can influence, you know, seemingly influence the most um, is out of an, a, a timeout because they're they're drawing up the play. They're calling it. It's basically all coming from them. And like if they've practiced well enough, then they'll execute well. And if not, then not. So there's like those two aspects of it. And Stevens is always really, really good about out of timeout plays. And Hoiberg is, I mean, uh, Stefan No from The Athletic has, has hit on this over and over and over again. Hoiberg is one of the worst in the league at out of the timeout plays. Um, just the Bulls consistently get bad shots um, or, or don't even get shots off. Uh, out of those kind of scenarios, and um, you know, I don't put, I don't necessarily put as much weight on the ATO stuff as maybe some other people do, because like I, I think that it is a data point, and and maybe a even really good data point, but like there's obviously also a lot more to uh, coaching than just drawing up nice plays out of timeouts. Like lineup choices mm-hmm. matter a lot, um, yep. and uh, you know. Getting guys to buy in matters a lot. Get it, having the respect of your players, but even on those 
sort of things, you can see that all of the Celtics really buy into everything that that Stevens is is selling. Um, and Hoiberg can't even get Jimmy Butler to call a timeout uh, from the floor. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Like Jimmy just tells him no and like says, I'm going to isolate here and goes and gets a bucket because he just doesn't trust Hoiberg at all. Um, and like, you know, the, from even from a lineup perspective, like uh, Brad Stevens is very well known for like having uh, statistics people like when he was at Butler, they had a guy that was like was constantly running numbers on different lineup combinations to find like w- what's the best lineup, uh, you know. And so I, I think, uh, you know, he's playing lineups that make more sense together. He's adapting to matchups. He's doing all of those kinds of things, whereas like Hoiberg. I've I've hit it like multiple times just in this podcast like he the three alphas thing is like a prime example last year with Pau Gasol his inability to get the buy-in or to even have the the guts to try to get the buy-in from Gasol to say hey like we need to put you on the bench and you know we're going to bring uh you know Taj or, or Joe Kim in as, as starters um you know or Felicia or whoever like the the his complete uh, inability or like just lack of, of trying to do anything like that is just illustrative of the point. So that's like all these different metrics uh, of like what not even they're not even like metrics, but like all these different like ways that you could analyze what a coach is and like just look at how they influence players um, and influence outcomes. And Hoiberg comes up short relative to Stevens and relative, frankly, to most coaches in the NBA. Um, across the board and you know i he got ranked by you know the an espn panel as the worst coach in the league i don't know if he's the worst coach in the league but i'm i feel pretty comfortable putting him in the bottom five uh and you know that's not going to be good enough uh against a a coach then you know i think maybe brad stevens is a little bit overrated just because i'd like to see him win a playoff series before people say he's you know the next popovich uh but you know, to have a team that has the talent level that they have win 53 games and be the one seed is still pretty impressive. Um, and so it is a massive mismatch. Um, so the, those two things, the bench and the, the coaching, are, are probably going to be the things that, that ultimately lead Boston to win the series. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and if nothing else, well, I think what we've learned here is that you do not like Fred Hoiberg. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> I think dis- that's clear. I don't even dislike him. I just don't think he's good at his job. Like I think he's, yeah, yeah, that, that's what I meant. That's what he, he seems like. A, he seems he seems like a nice enough guy. Um, yeah, I think the okie doke that he tried to pull on uh, Joe Kim Noah last year was kind of messed up because he was like. Oh yeah, it was Joe Kim's idea to come off the bench, and then Joe Kim was like, "To, to hell it was, <laughs> no." <laughs> um, so that was kind of a slimy move. But like, you know, I he seems like a perfectly nice guy. He just he's not uh, he's not a, he doesn't seem like strike me as a leader of men. Every time I ever see him on the, uh, I've tweeted about this a bunch of times, but every time you see him in the uh, in like the sideline interviews, even with like the media people, he looks frazzled. He looks like he doesn't like. I don't know. He just doesn't look confident. Um, and like, uh, I empathize with that a little bit because a lot of the times I'm more, uh, or, or not confident enough when I'm saying certain things like in my own, uh, like job or whatever. Uh, and like have that, don't have the, the full confidence cause I'm like hedging my bets or like whatever. Um, but like you're a coach, like that's a huge part of the job is just having the confidence that you belong there and that like these guys should listen to you. And he, like he never strikes me as really having that 
I guess, gravitas for the lack of a better word. Yeah. No, I think most would agree with you on that one. So, look, we've, we've gone deep in this series. I think we've pretty much covered the main talking points. So, let, let's let's wrap it up with a bit of a prediction. We'll see who comes out right after the series. I'm tipping we're both going to be predicting something similar. But give me your prediction and, and how the series unfolds. Uh, so, I think that... I mean, I think the Celtics win. Uh, the question is really... How many games does it take? Uh, yeah. I'm I'm inclined to say, uh, you know, the, I I think my pick would have been Celtics in in six, but after talking about it, I feel like and uh, thinking about Fred Hoiberg being at, at the helm, I'm kind of like maybe it'll be five, but I guess maybe I'll I'll be optimistic for once and say say Celtics in six. Um, and, and just chalk it up to Jimmy Butler's going to single-handedly win like two games. Um, and, and that's uh, <laughs> against, uh, against the, um, the incompetence of his, of his head coach and his team's lack of a bench. He'll just play all the minutes and just drag them to, to two wins, just like he dragged them to 41 wins when they had no business winning that many games. Fair call. Fair. I, I could definitely see that scenario playing out. And, and we should mention that the Bulls, I believe, will have three games on TNT on in, during this series. So that is another whether key that's point. a factor or not, <laughs> yeah, that could be a factor. Maybe that pushes it out to seven games. Who knows? <laughs> I, I'm going to say I'm going to say Celtics in five. And the reason I'm saying that is it would it would be typical Bulls to win the first game and for the Celtics to come out flat in the playoffs after coming out or winning the winning the East. And the Bulls will upset them in the first game, and then to lose four zip from then on. I think that would be typical Bulls in that sense. So that's pretty much what I'm expecting. So you're you're going Celtics in six. You're being the optimist. I'll be the pessimist, and I'll say Celtics in five. So we'll lock that away, and we'll see who's closer once the series is done. We we swap shoes. Usually, I'm the pessimist, yeah. and you're you're the more optimistic voice. <laughs> Yeah, between us, generally I'm a, I'm a pessimist, but between us, yeah, I think you probably are more pessimistic than <laughs> I usually am. But uh, I'll, I'm happy to wear that hat today, so uh, <laughs> that's all good. But uh, look, I appreciate you joining me. I, I think we d- dissected this series pretty well. It, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. But um, yeah, hopefully the Bulls at least show up and, and perform admirably. That I think that's pretty much all we can ask for at this point. So appreciate you joining me on the show. Where can people follow you? On Twitter, on your website, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so uh, Twitter is at NBA Couchside. Um, very, very funny pun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the um, website is nbacouchside.com. And I also I uh, have a newsletter that I do. Uh, you can sign up for that at patreon.com slash NBA Couchside. Um, it's five bucks a month. I write a newsletter or basically like an article where I do try to do a statistical deep dive on, uh, some thing that interests me from the NBA, uh, every single week. And, um, people seem to like them. Uh, it's five bucks a month. So it's, you know, the cost of maybe, uh, a, a very large coffee. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if you, if you want to check that out, that's, uh, where you can get all all things uh, me when it comes to basketball. Yeah, and and further to that point, I I subscribe to Kevin's newsletter, and it's really good. If you you've probably picked up on it from the way Kevin has spoke throughout this podcast, but he's very analytically driven, and and a lot of his newsletters and posts are 
or, or follow that theme. So you, you will learn a lot of stuff from reading Kevin's work. So if you haven't already and you're listening to this, I would definitely suggest subscribing to Kevin's newsletter. It's not necessarily just Bulls focused, but NBA at large. So you, he will cover the league and you do get some good content there. So um, definitely worth $5, I would say. So thanks for thanks again for joining, mate. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully Bulls HQ will be back shortly with some game summaries. Uh, we'll see how often I can get to that, but hopefully we'll, we'll, I'll be able to get out some, some new content, some new podcasts as the games progress. Hopefully the Bulls get a few wins. Check out Bulls HQ for some regular content. Hopefully I'll be able to be covering the game as well from an article perspective, but check out the website and there will be some fresh content up there. So until next time, this has been the Bulls HQ podcast. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.